0: I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning.
1: Good morning, Jill. So last night was a pretty short meeting. It was just two and a half hours, which is much different than our previous meetings. Very short. So the meeting started, Jill, with the superintendent addressing some news from earlier this week. And you may recall that BPS presented an inclusion and English language learner plan at the last meeting that really wasn't a plan at all. And we talked about this in our last podcast. So Jill, this plan basically said, hey, we're gonna put all the students with disabilities and all students who are multilingual learners. And sometimes there's overlap between those two groups and we're gonna move them into the general education setting. And just in the first blush, you could say, well, that's a good idea. We should actually have, everybody should be in the least restrictive environment. That's actually federal law. All students should be learning alongside their peers as much as possible. However, you also have to make sure that students are being supported. and so. Parents and families want to make sure their children are getting specialized instruction within that setting. And there's a lot of research that multilingual learners should be receiving instruction in their native language and English at the same time as much as possible. To um, be most successful, to right? To be most successful. Right. And this is bilingual education. This is not a new concept. And this is a concept that's been talked about for years and years. So there's a couple of things missing in the BPS inclusion plan that was discussed at the last meeting. One is there's no budget. There's no actual details about how students are gonna get specialized instruction or access to their native language. There's no professional development plan. There's no staffing plan. There's no explanation about how they're gonna find teachers to staff these classrooms, et cetera, and et cetera. This plan was presented not only to the school committee at the last meeting, but it was also presented to the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And we have yet to hear reaction from the department around this plan. In response to this plan, Jill, earlier this week, eight members wrote a letter of resignation to the mayor and the superintendent, and actually a ninth member of the ELL task force also resigned. Jill, they resigned from the ELL task force.
0: Yeah, and uh, this is a very big deal. Who were these folks who resigned and what does it mean?
1: Well, what, 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 first of all, what's a task force? 20 years ago, the Department of Justice came into BPS and said, hey, we're really concerned about how you're educating English language learners. and We're requiring you to create a task force of the best experts around English language learners in your city to advise you, BPS, on how to make sure that these students are being served well. And lo and behold, these are the members. These are actually some of the most expert people that I know around multilingual learners who have been advocates for years on how to educate students in BPS. First, we have Suzanne Lee who is the co-chair of the LL Task Force, or was. Suzanne Lee has been a, a teacher in BPS. She was actually one of the leaders around desegregation in Boston in, in the 1970s. She's been a leader of the Asian community for years and years. She was uh, one of the most successful principals of the Quincy School. She's an amazing educational leader in Boston. She resigned. We have Miriam Uriarty. She was the founder of the Gaston Institute at UMass Boston. Th- this institute essentially is one of the premier research institutions of English language learners in the country. She helped found it and ran it and was on the school committee. She resigned. John Mudd, who has been a civil rights advocate since the 1960s, has been served in with governors in Massachusetts, has led mass advocates for children, and has gone to every school committee meeting that I can ever remember. One of the most devoted people to the Boston Public Schools, resigned. Roxanne Harvey, Jill, who led the boston special education pack the parent advisory council for for a really long time it's just incredibly well-regarded leader in our city roxanne harvey resigned from the old task force these leaders jill don't just resign because they disagree with the district something else must have happened to lead them to resign and i believe jill that they felt like they were not being listened to and were not being heard i had a chance to talk with a couple of the members from the ELL Task Force who resigned. And what I heard from them is that this is not just about the idea that we're gonna include more students into general ed. In fact, they agree with that. They Mm -hmm. agree that we should have least restrictive environment. They just wanna know a plan for how students are gonna have native language speaking at the same time. They wanna make sure that no student is isolated in the classroom. And they've been advocating for this for a long time. They've been meeting with the superintendent and her team and saying, we have real concerns about this. And they, in fact, have said, they've just been straight up ignored, Jill. Mm -hmm. That they haven't been listened to. Nobody's asked them their opinion. Nobody cares about what they're saying. And in fact, they just, they're just they saying, look, if you don't really care, or you don't want to ask us some of the best education leaders in this city, then we all are going to resign. And this starts, Jill, with feeling ignored from City Hall all
0: the way through the school department. I mean, and so like, this explosion, this like, complete disruption, like, this complete decimation of the task force should be a huge signal. To, to, the, to the mayor and to, to the superintendent.
1: Jill, the lack of substance in this planning is alarming. And the district seems to be leading with announcements or leading with a press release rather than leading with any detail or any plan. And this is consistent in this administration. This is not the only thing where they've led with a headline versus any substance of a plan. We've not ever seen a task force, which is essentially assigned by the school committee, of People have been on this task force for years and years. We've never seen this get to a point where they're so disrespected and so and, and their expertise is so disrespected that they felt the need to resign. This is alarming.
0: Yeah, and you know, but un- unfortunately, I think both superintendent Skipper and school committee chair Jerry Robinson did not seem to understand or want to represent the enormity of the issue that the resignation represents. They simply said to task force members, "Hey." Thank you for your service. Here's Superintendent Skipper.
2: On behalf of the district, I would like to thank the members for their years of service and deeply appreciate their advocacy for
0: Boston's multilingual students. And here's Chair Robinson. First, I also want to thank
3: the task force for their service and commitment to our students and formally accept their resignations. We all share the same goals of improving student outcomes. We also know that we have, what we have been doing is not working.
0: And even more than that, BPS doubled down on what they presented last week, pointing the finger at the State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Here, again, is the superintendent.
2: You know, we're submitting our SIP to DESI. And it became very clear in conversations that we have been functioning, not using and applying the definition of SEI appropriately. And we were told very explicitly as we should be, that we should not be segregating our multilingual learners, but rather we should be ensuring that they have access to native instruction in language in the context of also having access to English-speaking peers and the appropriate amount of ESL instruction. And so that is, in fact, the basis of the plan. And so what I tried to do in my remarks, and I think what Dr. Chen has in her um, letters to the task force, but also to the community, is to be explicit that you know we are functioning within the work that we need to, within DESE, but also looking at the data of our multilingual learners longitudinally.
1: Jill, all the experts agree that the best way to educate multilingual learners is through bilingual education. There's overwhelming evidence that students learn best when they can learn core subjects in their native language while simultaneously learning English. Right now, that's happening for just 7% of English language learners in the city of Boston. 93% of English language learners aren't getting the necessary service.
0: Right. And John Mudd, who you just talked about, testified. He's testified at every school committee meeting for a very long time. He came out last night to express his outrage about what is happening.
2: We resigned because we believe that the inclusive education and OMME plans you submitted to the state will hurt children. The ELL task force has repeatedly argued that building on the foundation of native language is the best way to learn academic English and to learn core academic subjects. You have rejected our advice. BPS is doubling down on an English immersion strategy that your own reports show is failing over 90% of EL students. We can no longer appear to tacitly agree with what you are doing. Therefore, we resigned, but we resigned as members of the ELL task force. We did not resign as advocates.
1: You know, and Jill, and John John Mudd's testimony got cut off, unfortunately.
2: Thank you, Mr. I Mudd. I guess I've, I've
1: exhausted my time. I mean, he yeah. only had three minutes. Um, we should all be listening to what John Mudd and this ELL task force, the members who have resigned. We should be listening to what they're saying. It is an alarm bell going off. It is really important to pay attention. And it will be really interesting to see if the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education rules on this inclusion plan and ensures the district comes up with the details that are required to ensure our students are getting the education they deserve.
0: So the next thing we heard about in the superintendent's report was the exam school memo that she had promised at the past school committee meeting. And it you know, I don't know, purposely on un- not purposely, it was posted online only just before the meeting began around 6 PM. The memo did include a note from BPS saying that they do not need to wait five years in order to make changes to the exam school policy, which was something that BPS leaders were sort of representing up until this point. It does seem now though that via the memo, they're acknowledging that changes could be made sooner if deemed necessary. So we've looked at the memo. If you listened to our special episode yesterday, We've compared the two, and they're very, very similar. And so the memo does a great job of representing the history. And it's interesting, and because the memo also then provides a set of recommendations. And the recommendations are worth talking about. The first recommendation asks whether or not we should add a provision to the policy to ensure students who receive a perfect score get access to their first choice of an exam school. So these, I think, Ross, were the students who showed up at the meeting last, where they were the unintended consequences who, even though they had perfect scores, they had no way of getting into their first choice of an exam school.
2: It is impossible for me to get into any of the exam schools because your new policy requires a composite score of one hundred point two.
1: Right, Jill. So this is a this is a clear one and one. You know, I'm not a judge on this, Jill, but you know, I, I got to wonder legality of having a school in Boston that literally requires a hundred point two composite score, where where some students can only achieve a hundred when you exclude any student or make it impossible for a student to attend a public school. It seems to warrant some conversation around legality.
0: Right. And this comes, goes down to the tiers because, you know, if we understand it correctly, in tiers which are representing the most economically disadvantaged parts of the city, any student who applies gets in. And the district is not actually able to fill all of the seats that they've allocated in each one of those tiers. But in tiers six, seven, and eight, there are students who did not get the points, who are economically disadvantaged, who do have excellent scores, but there is just no way for them to get into their exam school of choice.
1: This is not shocking. This is kind of what member Cadet Hernandez has been saying. And a lot of people been have been testifying and saying for a while. And let's be clear about this. The tiers actually provide what the exam school task force intended, right? right? So they basically said, We want the most economically disadvantaged families and students to, to choose first, and then the most economically advantaged to choose last. And
0: what because there's a hundred percent distribution by tiers,
1: right? It's a hundred percent distribution by eight tiers, so therefore, so you don't really need the points. You don't need the points. In fact, Jill, in as you said, in tiers one through five, the points actually have no effect whatsoever. Everyone who has a B applies, gets into an exam school. Where the points come into play is really at tiers six, seven, and eight, but mostly tier seven, where students who are not economically disadvantaged. So I think, Jill, there's about 180 kids in tiers six, seven, and eight who are not economically disadvantaged who receive 10 points, right? It it doesn't make sense. And basically they're receiving 10 points and where there's other kids not receiving 10 points, basically those kids are getting into exam schools walking into exam schools and other kids are not but they're all not economically disadvantaged right
0: i mean i think what we learned in going back and looking at the history of this is that the superintendent at the time kind of mixed and matched there was a recommendation that the task force said that the superintendent backed that said 20% distribution on based on student merit and achievement and then 80% allocation based on tiers and so the points were a mechanism that that you just described So when the superintendent proposed her version of this, she disregarded that 2080 moved back to 100 percent distribution, which was the other option on the table. Once you're allocating by tiers alone, 100 percent distribution, you don't need the points, but the points got carried over.
1: Right. So, Jill, I mean, there's a couple of ways to deal with this. One is the tiers take care of the points. You don't need points. The other way to deal with this is assign the points to those who are economically disadvantaged to ensure everyone gets it. The district did point out last night that there are students in tiers six, seven and eight who do need the points who did not get them and then therefore did not get into an exam school. And, Jill, I just add one more piece to this there. If if there are seats unfilled in tiers one through five, not enough applicants, yeah. if you will, then those seats should be given to tier six, seven and eight where there's more applicants, right? There's ways I mean, to there deal with this. if there are seats
0: in those schools, then it feels like uh, it should be redistributed. It,
1: it, it, it seems very strange, Jill, that we continue, that even the memo that was put out at 610 last night by yeah. the superintendent's team doesn't disclose all the information that right. has been asked for. It continues to be elusive. And you gotta wonder if you're being elusive, what are you hiding?
0: Right. And then there's the irony of the other point made in the memo where they ask the question about whether or not there should be potential changes specific to increasing representation of students with disabilities and multilingual learners. That does not feel like a thoughtful question. You know, it seems like the question there should be, are we providing the right environments and the right level of curriculum for students who are defined in those ways? But Truly, I think it was enlightening. You know, I guess the onus is now on the school committee to review the memo, and to, I'm sure we're going to have public comment about it in the next uh, school committee meeting.
1: And Jill, he- here, here's um, an opportunity for a new leadership team in BPS. You know, they're, they're reviewing a policy from the previous administration. They're seeing the data as alarming. They're hearing from all these people saying, here's a better way to do it, including a number of school committee members. This is an opportunity for leadership. For the superintendent and her team to say, we actually can see this too. We know you're right, and let's go ahead and make adjustments. We hope it's not a missed opportunity.
0: So moving on, there were only a few speakers for public comment last night. We heard this disturbing testimony from a parent of a special education student. In regards to my daughter, she is struggling in ELA as reflected in her MCAS scores. Entering the school year, there was no SPED teacher or para in her inclusion classroom. While my daughter started receiving services last week, the IEP is not being executed in compliance consistently. My daughter now documents every service she receives daily.
3: I do not have the faith that corners will not be cut and continue to violate my daughter's rights as the district cannot appropriately staff existing inclusion classrooms.
0: BPS leaves sped families distraught with nowhere to turn except litigation for those with means. Administration should be ashamed for allowing this and other unethical behavior against our children's education to continue.
1: Jill, it's heartbreaking to hear any family going through this. And as we're talking about inclusion and, and special education plans and so on and so forth, to hear from the ground of a, a family who is so struggling and so concerned about the just basic services that their child deserves, we should be ashamed.
0: It's got to be so disturbing for the parent to have to come forward. And we hear it's not like this is the first time yeah. we've heard a parent testimony like this. It is. It's super sad.
1: Then Edith Baziel, longtime education advocate, spoke about how the Opportunity Achievement Gaps Task Force is being used as a rubber stamp by the district, and also her frustration with the school committee's practice of cutting off certain public testimony before the presenter is finished.
3: The administration abolished all of the elements of racial equity. No restorative justice workers in every school paused cert meetings. Racial equity planning tool is abandoned. The racial equity impact committee was abolished which I was a part of, the racial equity dashboard was scrapped and Black leaders doing authentic racial equity work terminated. I call on the OAG task force to follow the lead of the EL task force and refuse to be a rubber stamp, resign and end the facade. And lastly, I call on you to stop cutting off people with whom you disagree and give them the extra time that you give other people, there's some disparity in allowing people to use their voices on this platform. If you're going to cut off people at three minutes, you should cut off every person at three minutes. You cut off Mike Heishman. You're let other people go on and on. So I advise
0: this yeah, Ms. Bizzio, thank
3: committee you. to really take that under advisement. Thank you so much.
0: So, Ross, moving along, I don't know how much we want to go into the human capital report from last night. Honestly, our listeners could just go back to the last night at school committee podcast from a year ago today. We'll link it in our blog to hear how we reported on what appears to be the same presentation.
1: Jill, it seems like the last few years have been the same exact slides. There's an absolute absence of anything around teacher quality. There's a lack of data overall. There's nothing about performance evaluation. There's yeah, nothing I was going to say, I don't even think they, it
0: doesn't sound like they're reviewing teachers.
1: Nope. Nope. There's no data yeah. presented. And they simply are talking about, like, they keep on using this term, like, Garrity educators. And I don't want to get into this, Jill, on this podcast. We covered it We're the last few it, years. Right. But, it but, is, now,
0: but now they're calling people, like, now it's a brand.
1: It's a misinformed, lazy way of describing teachers of color. And I think it's rather disrespectful. I think think Uh, it is, The district should have, if they have a standard for diversity of educators, racial, linguistic, cultural diversity, state their goals, state what the standard is, and then... Be clear about how they're meeting that standard. Yeah, it's Stop. ridiculous.
0: By calling them Garrity educators, you're basically saying, well, you have been hired because we have to. It, it is. And it, by it, the way. It's, it's so like, disrespectful. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And, and
1: somebody should address this. It, it is not right. Yeah. Jill, a couple of items that we did hear last night was about 127 teacher vacancies. So We continue to have classrooms that don't have teachers in them. We should be highly concerned about this. And we heard from Chief Canty, from the Office of Human Capital that many of these vacancies are in Madison Park High School because they're hard to fill.
3: The Madison always have, will always have an issue because like that content CTE licenses yes. are extremely hard to get. Um, it's hard to find people with those specialized mm-hmm. um, backgrounds. So that's one of the areas that we generally have those concentration of issues with.
1: Um, Jill, by the way, when we're gonna double the size of Madison Park High School, but we can't find teachers to teach at Madison Park High School, I think that's pretty concerning.
0: So then after this presentation, the school committee seemed to be very focused on where one might go to recruit if they are the district. And so Vice Chair Michael O'Neill suggested that BPS look at recruiting those who will be laid off by other districts as a result of the upcoming fiscal cliff.
2: Federal funding is gonna slow down pretty substantially next year, right? ESSA is gonna be gone. And we are going to have districts that have not planned appropriately and are going to be having layoffs, plain and simple. It's in the papers all the time. <clears throat> and we've certainly tried to do some planning as well. So I hope there's um intentionality and thoughtfulness around that to make sure, even as we shift folks on to ESSA positions that may slowly have less funding or um, even an opportunity to recruit from other districts.
1: Wait a minute, Jill, are we... Is BPS increasing in size? Like, are we hiring more teachers? I thought we also were, we're going to have a physical cliff. I don't uh, know. Maybe we're, we're
0: going back to the well and maybe the mayor is planning on funding more of this it just but what are you kidding me it's just we
1: we, oh, we know we've added hundreds of positions in esser yeah that are going to go away after the school well, year and,
0: and school committee members have said that again and again and, and again and, including vice chair o'neill so and we've
1: lost students right, right? We, we we have thousands of less students in bps than we've had before right. we have like all, almost all of our schools are getting soft landings and and then the vice chair o'neill is saying Let's go get those. We'll go poach them from, right, from those who are falling off the cliff. Like other, like somehow like right. Boston is is immune to, to it, doesn't these challenges. Any, know, it. Doesn't make any sense. Very strange.
0: Well, also, I mean, why not a question about all right? When we have to right size the district next year because of the cliff, will we have no vacancies? Yeah. You, you know like are, are we going to then have a retention problem who knows we, because they there's no numbers in no any numbers. of these reports no
1: backup no numbers no substantive conversation whatsoever complete lack of detail but jill let's level set here on on this human capital presentation because while we can't really dig into any part of it because it's very concerning with the lack of detail what is important jill if you ask any parent or any student or anybody, what's most important part of a child's education is their teacher. It is the quality of that teacher. And BPS needs to stop mailing in these presentations on teacher quality and focus on the incredible part of this child's education, which is the teacher. Let's talk about how we're going to have the best, most effective teacher in every child's classroom.
0: And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting.
1: We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your student, please send us an email at podcast at Foundation.org. That's Foundation.org.
0: Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. And if you haven't listened yet to our new series, Deep Dives, Find our first episode in your feed about what it will take to transform public education in America. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.